This program is a presentation of UCTV for educational and non-commercial use only. Now I would like to introduce tonight's speaker. Hilary Putnam, as I said, is Kogan University Professor Emeritus at Harvard University, where he taught for 35 years. Professor Putnam played a primary role in organizing the philosophy program at MIT and has also taught at Northwestern University and at Princeton. He has led a number of professional philosophical associations, is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, corresponding fellow of the British Academy, and has been awarded numerous honorary degrees. What is exciting to many of us about Putnam's work is its breadth. He has made fundamental contributions to metaphysics, epistemology, philosophy of science, philosophy of language, philosophy of mind, the theory of value, and philosophical movements, including American pragmatism and Jewish philosophy. In other words, a good introductory library of philosophy could be quite easily constructed by simply going to Amazon.com, entering Hillary Putnam as author, and buying one of each. In fact, they may even have a special deal for you, like a 34 for the price of 20 offer, or something like that. In the context of this series, Putnam is famous for his long list of publications on philosophical realism and its implications for science. More recently, religion, as discussed, for instance, in the context of Wittgenstein's work, has been a recurrent theme. Putnam is also famous for questioning the fact-value distinction that, as I noted earlier, forms the most common taken-for-granted basis for separating science and religion. In short, Hilary Putnam has long asked all the right questions. In fact, this is the very spirit of inquiry he's long maintained. Here is an epigraph he placed in his book, Realism with a Human Face. This is from Letters to a young poet. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart, and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. Without further ado, we welcome Professor Hilary Putnam, whose Templeton Research Lecture tonight is entitled, The Depths and Shallows of Experience. Professor Putnam. Thank you so much, Jim Proctor. This is, last night was only the second night I've ever spent in Santa Barbara. But I remember very well the first one 40 years ago because it was my wedding night. <laughs> and um, this morning I spoke to my wife on the phone and she gave me a very nice epigraph for this talk from the varieties of William James' varieties of religious experience, which he's currently writing a paper on. And the epigraph is the following. William James wrote, The problem I have set myself is a hard one. To defend against all the prejudices of my class, he puts class in quotes, experience against philosophy, 
as being the great backbone of the world's religious life. <laughs> so, <clears throat> anyone, who has had the anyone who has the temerity to speak about the broad themes to which this series of lectures is devoted, the themes of science, religion, and human experience, cannot hope to hide behind an academic facade of professional expertise. To be sure, there are matters which inevitably come up in any such lecture, which can benefit from being treated with scientific or philosophical sophistication. Otherwise, what am I doing here? Uh, but the big issues, to believe in God or not to believe in God, to engage in such religious practices as prayer, attending services, studying religious texts, or not to do so, and I'm not equating that with the issue of believing or not believing in God, by the way, uh, to look for proof of God's existence if one is religious or thinking of being religious, or to regard such a quest as misguided, to be pluralistic in one's approach to religion, or to regard one religion as truer than all the rest. These are deeply personal choices, choices of who to be, not just what to do or what to believe. I do not believe that philosophical or scientific discussion can provide compelling reasons for making them one way rather than another, although it can help us make whichever choices we make more reflectively. Uh, the Israeli scholar Avi Sagi uh, once told me, he was a Kierkegaard scholar, once told me that in a still unpublished fragment of, I think it was a diary of Kierkegaard's, he found the words, leap of faith, yes, but only after reflection. I did say, however, that there are aspects of these issues that a philosophically sophisticated discussion can illuminate. In today's lecture, I shall say something about one such aspect, namely the notion of experience. Both in, which is, and here James quote that it's experience that his view that's the backbone of the world's religious life, <laughs> as to be remembered. Both in life and in philosophical reflection, Experience is sometimes seen as intrinsically shallow, as mere surface, and sometimes as deep. I want to investigate, to interrogate, the origins of our notion of experience in Cartesian and post-Cartesian philosophy and explore with you the relevance of the long-standing philosophical disputes about experience for our broad themes of science, religion, and human experience. When I speak of religious experience, I will not mean experience that purports to be of supernatural beings or a revelation conceived of on the model of having words dictated to one by a divine being, which I think is a fairly rare form of religious experience. One can find a very different model, the model of revelation as the ongoing connection between the individual and God in the writings of Franz Rosenzweig. Rather, I will have in mind the way in which a religious person may at any time experience something or some event, whether it be an obviously significant one, say the birth of a child, or the sort of deep crisis in one's life that James describes in the varieties of religious experience, or whether it be a superficially ordinary one, as full of religious significance. Speaking for myself, I cannot imagine being religious in any sense, theistic or non-theistic, unless one has had and cherished moments of religious experience in this latter sense. Even, uh, even St. Augustine's 
peak religious experience has no, in fact, neither of his two famous religious experiences has any angels or divine beings uh, in them. The first one, of course, was that of hearing a child's voice just saying, pick it up and read. It doesn't matter really whether there actually was a child in the neighborhood saying, pick it up and read or not. It was the how that experience was perceived that counted. And the second religious experience, the one he had together with his mother, Monica, uh, he said was word like a sentence without words. <laughs> Yet the concept of experience that we have operated with from Descartes and Hume to today's cognitive scientists has a troubled history. And I think it will repay us, in fact, I think it's absolutely necessary, to reflect on that history. What I shall be talking about for the most part will not be what I just called religious experience. Rather, I'm going to spend a few minutes trying to explain why so many people have, and from where they got, a concept of experience which leaves no room for depth. A conception of experience is, so to speak, all psychological surface, one traditionally summed up in the conception of experience as sensations. And after that, I shall try to explain why that conception is wrong, drawing especially on Kant's profound analysis of experience. We all know that the philosophers of the 17th and 18th centuries are classified by the standard texts as empiricists and rationalists. While the classification is in many ways a Procrustean bed, it certainly captures a broad divide between, say, the British philosophers, Locke, Berkeley, and Hume, and the continental philosophers, Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz. And while the pattern of disagreements is by no means as tidy as the labels empiricism and rationalism suggest, it is certainly true that we find very different conceptions of experience in the two groups, and especially in Hume and Leibniz. What's not often remarked is that Hume the empiricist who makes experience under the name impressions and ideas, the be-all and end-all of his philosophy, and who prides himself on being a sort of Newton of psychology, is in fact far less subtle in his description of experience than Leibniz. Be that as it may, the line that came to be recognized is between conceptions of experience that go back to Hume and conceptions that go back to Kant, who hoped, of course, to sublate the categories empiricism and rationalism. I shall briefly sketch these two conceptions because they epitomize the idea of experience as shallow and the idea of experience as deep. For Hume, the very paradigm of an impression and the other sort of experience he recognized, ideas, was described by him as faint copies of impressions. The paradigm was a visual image. And there were scientific reasons for that in the science of the time. Descartes and Berkeley had both tried to read the nature of visual impressions directly from the newly investigated nature of retinal images. The result of this approach was a tendency to think of all impressions on the model of pictures. Not necessarily visual, of course. They were also tactile, olfactory, etc., representations. But like pictures, these images and the ideas or faint copies that corresponded to them were thought by Hume to to refer only to what they resembled. Content on this resemblance semantics is a rather primitive affair. The very idea of a fact that cannot be sensorily pictured 
was consistently rejected by Hume as it was later by the early logical positivists. In fact, there was a problem for logical positivists because they were also physicists, several of them. So on the one hand, quite philosophers, for a long time they were saying that all, every fact can be sensorily pictured. They had a Humean conception of a fact, but at the same time, physics was more and more talking about things that can't be pictured. And not until about 1937, 38, 39 did Rudolf Carnap, their leader, <laughs> uh, abandon the sensory picture notion of a fact. The only other sort of content for Hume arises from association, especially the association of what he called passions, feelings, and emotions with images. Today there are very few, I don't know if there are any, old-fashioned empiricists in philosophy. But what survives of the older view is the very influential idea that experience, which is still identified by empiricists with sensory inputs, is, quote, non-conceptual. That's a big debate in present-day philosophy of perception. Quine's idea that for philosophical purposes, experience talk can simply be replaced with talk of surface irritations, stimulation of the nerves on or near the surface of the body, in many ways foreshadowed this influential idea. So much for the shallow conception. Now for Kant and the deep conception. In Kant's writing, one can find a response to the empiricist view of experience as consisting of sensory images, a response so deep that even today few philosophers who are not primarily Kant specialists have fully appreciated it. Strawson, Sellers, and more recently John McDowell and James Conant being among the happy exceptions. I cannot, of course, do justice to it, but I hope at least to point out some of the leading ideas of the Kantian conception. It's important, however, to realize that no one book of Kant contains all of it. From the critique of pure reason to religion within the bounds of mere reason, Kant consistently broadens and deepens the presentation of his view and perhaps the view itself. The account in the critique of pure reason is nonetheless the basis on which the deeper and broader reflections in the critique of judgment and religion within the bounds of mere reason depend. Hume, as we just saw, conceived of experiences on the model of pictures, and their cognitive content is contained and communicated via sensory resemblance. Only sensory qualities are thus properly cognizable at all, if one accepts this, then many of Hume's other famous doctrines reg readily follow. For example, Hume's claim that we don't observe causal connection depends both on Hume's limitation of what we can observe to sensory qualities and on his very narrow inventory of sensory qualities. Since causal connection is not a sensory quality for Hume, it's evident to him that causal connection is never observed. Piaget might disagree about it. On the other hand, although objective time hardly consists of sensory qualities either, Hume never worries about the question how and why are we able to think of impressions and ideas, in his sense, as succeeding one another in an objective time. Kant did, however, worry about this question, and he concluded that our notions of objective time, causality, and lawful connection are interdependent. For example, our awareness of a boat sailing down a river, coming, let us say, to a certain bridge, as earlier than the boat sailing beyond the bridge, 
even though we think of a building's back as existing at the same time as the front, even if we look at the front before we look at the back, are internally related to our beliefs that we could have chosen to experience the front before the back, but we could not, conditions as they, being as they were, have chosen to experience the boats sailing beyond the bridge before we experienced the boats approaching the bridge. And these beliefs, these facts that we know, are in turn related to the system of causal connections we accept. The notion of time is inextricably connected with the notions of space, time, and causality. This is not just a fact about Newton's physics or Einstein's, but about our ordinary conceptual scheme as well. Imagine, just as a thought experiment, that there's a more or less instantaneous world state, call it A, consisting of a sense impression as of a cat chasing a mouse, a world state, call it B, consisting of a sense impression as of a 12-foot cat singing Yankee Doodle, and a world state, call it C, consisting of a sense impression as of a purple tidal wave sweeping over a field of flowers with heads like Charlie Chaplin. What sense would it have to say that these are states of one and the same world, or even states of one and the same subject, let alone to speak of them as temporally ordered, if there are no causal connections of any kind between them? Hume's argument depends upon our thinking of the concepts experiences A and B, think of experiences at different times here, lie in one and the same phenomenal world, our experiences of the same subject, and A is earlier than B as presuppositionless. Our question, however, concerned how we experience things and not how we conceive them. But long before modern psychology, Kant questioned the coherence of such a dichotomy. We do not experience familiar objects and events, a cat's drinking milk, a tree swaying in the wind, someone's hammering a nail into a wall, as collections of color points on a spatial grid. As William James put it, in the case of a presented and recognized material object, these are James' words, Sensations and apperceptive ideas fuse so intimately that you can no more tell where one begins and the other ends than you can tell in those cunning circular panoramas that have lately been exhibited where the real foreground and the painted canvas join together. In Kant's language, in the sort of perception James described, the perception of a perceived and recognized material object, or in an example Kant himself uses, in the case of experiencing something as the front of a building and another thing as a boat sailing down the river, we have not mere unconceptualized sensations, whatever an unconceptualized sensation might be, but a synthesis, Kant's famous word, of experiences and conceptual ideas, the ideas of space, time, and causation. This is something that the phenomenological school of philosophy, beginning with Husserl, likewise emphasized. I see a building as something which has a back, Husserl pointed out, even when I don't see the back. Such perception is fallible, to be sure. I might be looking at a movie set. But so is the perception that something is red or circular. And the retreat to sense data and the hope that there we can find something incorrigible has long been recognized to be a loser. A second issue which plays a large role in the critique of pure reason 
and one which figures in contemporary attacks on what postmodernists consider to be the metaphysical illusion of the ego is the issue of right and wrong ways to think about what it means to be or to have a self. As Nicholas Boyle has observed in a, in a wonderful book called uh, Who Are We Now? Postmodernist doubts about whether there's such a thing as a self or an author never stopped the postmodernist from cashing a royalty check. Here again, pay more attention to Kant would help to clear our heads. For Kant, rational thought itself depends on the fact that I regard my thoughts, experiences, memories, etc., as mine. To illustrate Kant's point, imagine yourself going through a very simple form of reasoning. Say, boiling water hurts if you stick your finger in it. This is boiling water, so it will hurt if I stick my finger in it. If the time slice of me that thought that thought boiling water hurts if you stick your finger in it is, was one person, person A, and the time slice that thought the minor premise, this is boiling water, was a different person, person B, and the person that thought the conclusion, in quote, it will hurt if I stick my finger in this, was yet a third person, person C, then the conclusion was not warranted. Indeed, the sequence of thoughts was not an argument at all, since the thoughts were thoughts of different thinkers none of whom had any reason to be bound by what the others thought or had thought. We are responsible for what you have thought and done in the past, responsible now, intellectually and practically. And that is what makes us thinkers, rational agents in a world at all. Kant, like Locke before him, by the way, who made similar points, this is one respect in which dividing philosophers into camps, football teams, doesn't work, can be seen as making the point that the thinking of my thoughts and actions at different times as mine doesn't depend on a metaphysical premise about self-identical substances and is nonetheless a form of conceptualization that we cannot opt out of when we're engaged in judgment in action. As before, to say that Kant's point is valid for conceptualization but not for experience would be to miss the way in which experiences and concepts interpenetrate, the way in which they are synthesized. When I reason, say, about the boiling water, I experience my successive thoughts as mine. Hume is right in holding that this is not a sensory quality. There is no impression of my ownness, and Kant would emphasize this just as much as Hume. But whereas Hume concludes that the self is an illusion, Kant sees that experience transcends Humean impressions. Whereas for Hume, experiences are sheer psychological surface. For Kant, even the simplest perception links us to and interanimates such deep ideas as the ideas of time, space, causality, and the self. And this is something that Kant does not just claim, but that he argues in detail and with incomparable brilliance. That experience is intrinsically deep is the heart of the Kantian conception. It is not something that was overthrown by the collapse of Kant's synthetic a priori and the metaphysics Kant tried to base upon it. But I now want to turn to Kant on aesthetic experience. I said that above that Kant deepens the presentation of his views and perhaps the views themselves in successive books. And I should add, not only in books. For example, a wonderful and sadly neglected discussion of what is right and wrong in mysticism may be found scattered in Kant's writing. But nowhere is this more true than in the critique of judgment, the so-called third critique. I cannot, of course, even sketch the complex and rewarding aesthetic theory of that critique. 
Fortunately, that's not my goal. What I want to do is to extract one item from that complex discussion. Although to do that, I will have to say a little about the ideas that surround it, the item. The item in question is the fascinating notion of an indeterminate concept. When we experience a work of art, Kant tells us we experience it as escaping capture by what he calls determinate concepts. But we do perceive it as not being captured by, but evoking a kind of concept, an indeterminate concept, one which is, or sometimes he speaks of a representation which cannot be captured by a determinate concept, which is deeply connected with what Kant calls the free play of the imagination. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, the, ple- the free play of the faculties, by which he means imagination and reason under the guidance of the former. Here I do have to interpret the aesthetic theory I said I wouldn't discuss to the extent of warning my listeners against two common misinterpretations. The first, which I'm indebted to Paul Geyer for pointing out to me, is the assumption that when Kant speaks of pure aesthetic experience, he's using pure as a value term. The verse is the case. I mean, pure aesthetic experience for Kant is purely formal. It has nothing to do with content, like the fact that... So if Kant really meant to valorize pure aesthetic experience as the true art, he would be the philosopher of abstract expressions. <laughs> which he certainly didn't intend to be. Uh, The reverse is the case. The art that Kant values and thinks we should all value is mixed, impure. Pure aesthetic experience in Kant's sense is concerned only with form. But to value, say, a painting which moves us both on account of its subject matter and its formal properties, or a novel or a poem, is to respond not only to the purely aesthetic features in his technical sense, but to the interplay of description, valuation, and purely formal experience. A second misunderstanding to be avoided is the idea that it's only the concept of beauty that Kant has in mind by the term indeterminate concept. And you can see that's a misinterpretation, especially in Kant's discussion of genius, by the way, where he says explicitly, the genius produces aesthetic ideas which begin as determinate concepts. I'm going to paint a picture of so-and-so. I'm going to write a novel about such-and-such. It's going to have to such-and-such properties. But as he works, the aesthetic idea becomes too rich to capture by a determinate concept. Um, I have even here a nice... uh, Oh, here's a nice quote. Uh... Kant says, if after these analyses we look back to the explanation given above of what is called genius, we find first that it's a talent for art, second that as a talent for art, it presupposes a determinate concept of the product as an end, hence understanding, but also a representation, even if indeterminate, of the material, i.e. of the intuition, that is the sensory aspect, for the presentation of this concept, hence a relation of the imagination to the understanding, Third, that it displays itself not so much in the execution of the proposed end, in the presentation of a determinate concept. It's not good just because he wanted, uh, 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 Velasquez wanted to paint a picture of the royal children. Uh, As in the exposition or the expression of aesthetic ideas which contain rich material for that aim, Hence, the imagination in its freedom from all guidance by rules is nevertheless represented as purposive for the presentation of the given concept. 
illustrate what I believe Kant actually had in mind, think of a painting by Vermeer, pick your favorite. It's not indescribable. A great deal about it can be described. The notorious Vermeer forger, von Megeren, could undoubtedly have given a precise, that is a determinate description of a great many features of this or that, of this or Vermeer paintings in general. But the description, although it might teach us a lot, even add to our appreciation of such a painting, would not answer the question, why is this painting so beautiful? And in fact, von Megeren's forgeries are not beautiful. Uh, sadly. A painting could satisfy this determinate description and not be beautiful. What Kant interestingly says about the discussion of works of art is not that it is impossible to describe what it is that strikes us as beautiful, which it would be if the only alternatives were to apply to them determinate concepts of the kind an art historian might offer or to apply the single indeterminate concept beautiful. What he says is that works of art evoke thinking which goes on indefinitely, which indeed can never be closed off. In short, certain concepts seek and manage less to finish a discussion or to answer a determinate question as to further provoke both thought and imagination and to raise an endless number of further questions. And these are the concepts we need and have to use to talk meaningfully about art. What connects the notion of an indeterminate concept with my topic of experience is that it is precisely in the context of discussing how we perceive works of art that Kant invokes it. Indeterminate concepts are not purely intellectual concepts. They require both a sensible subject matter and an active imagination to apply. That perception is fused with conceptual content is something we learned from the critique of pure reason. That some of the perceptions we value most are fused with indeterminate, with open-ended conceptual content, content in which imagination and reason cooperate under the leadership of imagination is something we learn from the critique of judgment. The notion of an indeterminate concept understood in this way naturally extends to moral notions. If Kant does not use it in the area of morals, it is because I think of a desire to keep morality rigorous and transparent. But morality, good morality, cannot always be rigorous and transparent. And I think it was seen that something like the notion of an indeterminate concept applies also to the highest type of moral awareness is Iris Murdoch, even if she does not cite Kant or use his terminology. Thus, in her philosophical masterpiece, and you didn't know Iris Murdoch was a first-rate philosopher as well as a novelist, in her philosophical masterpiece, The Sovereignty of Good, she writes, moral tasks are characteristically endless, not only because within, as it were, a given concept, our efforts are imperfect, but also because as we move and as we look, our concepts themselves are changing. So think of Socrates, who ch changed our concept of bravery by forcing us to realize that just being free of the emotion of fear and loyal and wanting to give your life for your country doesn't make you brave if you can't distinguish foolhardiness or simple rashness from bravery. We do not simply, through being rational and knowing ordinary language words, know the meaning of all necessary moral words. We may have to learn the meaning, and since we are his human historical individuals, the movement of understanding is onward into increasing privacy in the direction of the ideal limit, and not backwards towards a genesis in the ruling of an impersonal public language. Beyond both aesthetics, 
in the sense of the open-ended discussion of works of art and morality in the sense of Murdoch's loving attention to the whole complexity of human beings and human moral life. It should be obvious, I think, that religious experiences are both guided by and spontaneously give rise to indeterminate concepts in a way analogous to the ways in which aesthetic and moral experiences do. And if we see religious, aesthetic, and moral experiences in this way, as I've been urging we should, we will avoid Hume's mistake of trying to analyze them as a chemist analyzes a compound, analyze them into so much of this factor, ideas and impressions, so much of that factor, passions, and so much of this other factor, beliefs. In the deepest human experiences, ways of perceiving thing, things that are inseparable from those experiences, but nonetheless conceptual, at least in the way indeterminate concepts are conceptual, fuse so intimately that you cannot tell where one begins and the other ends, to adapt William James' words. Although the phenomenological school of philosophy, which began with Husserl, inherited and extended the Kantian insights I've been describing, the most influential 20th century phenomenologist, Heidegger, had a contemptuous attitude to science, which for him was merely an aspect of technological civilization, which he despised. In Heidegger's writing, uh, I have everything I've been saying about the depth of religious experience, including the experiences of being and of being thrown into the world and of finding a destiny which is one's own most, which are Heidegger's versions of or substitutes for religious experience, as well as of artistic experience, especially experience of poetry, especially of Herderlin's poetry, and even of, our, even of our everyday experiences with artifacts is recognized and phenomenologically interpreted, but science is denigrated. It is not, I think, that Heidegger would have wanted to deny that scientific experience is highly conceptualized, but rather that he saw it as merely a part of technical civilization. I think what he, what, when he spoke of the inner greatness of national socialism, I, uh, what he was thinking of was primarily the, the time when he saw national socialism as the answer to technological civilization. And then he would, decided he'd been mistaken. But technological civilization is the great problem. But if we do not examine the impact of science on our ways of experiencing the world in a careful way, or if we demonize science, we are likely to fall back into the empiricist picture of science as consisting of deductive and inductive inferences from simple sense data, or Machian and Findelman. To find a sustained critique of this way of thinking, we have to turn to the American pragmatists, and especially John Dewey. Continuing the line of thought that William James had begun with his talk of apperceptive ideas and sensations as fusing, Dewey saw that, when so that science endlessly and inventively creates new observation concepts and that by so doing, it institutes new data, kinds of data. A scientist with a cloud chamber may now observe a proton colliding with a nucleus without being able to answer the question, exactly what visual sensations did you have when you observed it? Or think of looking under a microscope. Can, some people can learn to see things with a microscope, and some people have great difficulty ever learning that. And the person who can see, oh, this is such and such a bacterium, can't say what sense data he's having. He can say, I see a bacterium of such and such a kind. 
you can observe a virus with the aid of an electron microscope or observe a DNA sequence and so on. And the impact of science on the conceptualization of experience is not confined to specialists. The way in which all of us experience the world was changed by Darwin, was changed by Freud, whether one thinks this or that claim of Freud's as well or is or ill-founded, as the notion of the unconscious became part of our vocabulary. And it is being changed today by computer science and the concepts and metaphors it adds to the language. On the metal level, the level of the methodological appraisal of scientific theories, we also find something in science analogous to the indeterminate concepts involved in aesthetic judgment, indeterminate concepts that figure in judgments that are internal to scientific inquiry itself, judgments of coherence, simplicity, plausibility, and the like. The similarity of such judgments to aesthetic judgments has indeed often been pointed out. Dirac was famous for saying that certain theories should be taken seriously because they were beautiful. And Einstein talked of the inner perfection of a theory as an indispensable criterion in his autobiographical notes. But it's time to say something of the wider relevance of this picture of experience. The picture of experience is deep for the concerns of this series of lectures. At first blush, recognizing the perception and experience that purports to be perception or resembles perception is always conceptualized may seem to make the problem of skepticism much worse, especially when religion is the issue. From Kant to John McDowell, philosophers who point out that experience is conceptualized have been told that they are in some way problematizing our access to reality. Concepts can, after all, mislead as well as lead, conceal as well as reveal, which is why there's this craving to find something unconceptualized, what uh, sometimes is called the metaphysics of presence. The fact that religious concepts are no longer intersubjectively shared within Western culture and have not been for a long time makes this more than a pure, purely theoretical issue, as skepticism about the existence of houses and rocks happily has become. For the ancient Greek skeptics, it's often pointed out it was anything. Skepticism about houses and rocks was anything but a purely theoretical issue. But that's another story and not one I need to tell today. While no one can say that there are only so and so many possible answers a religious person can give to the atheist or to the religious skeptic, three main approaches are familiar to all of us. The traditional approach, and the one that is still that of the Roman Catholic Church, is to continue, albeit with contemporary sophistication, the medieval attempt to prove the existence of God, Neo-Thomism being the most famous example of this. This is not an approach I find possible for myself, at any rate, for the following reasons. First, in order to understand talk about God, whether or not that talk takes the form of a proof, one must be able to understand the concept God. But there are very different possible conceptions of what it is to understand the concept God in a way that has no analog in the case of, say, mathematical proof. Secondly, even if one understands the concept God, to accept any of the traditional proofs, one has to find a connection between that concept and the highly theoretical philosophical principles involved in those proofs, premises about conditioned and unconditioned existence and about what sorts of necessity there are. 
some of the most profound religious thinkers of the last 200 years, particularly the existentialists, from Kierkegaard to Ro the religious existentialists, from Kierkegaard to Rosenzweig and Buber, have had no use at all for this sort of philosophizing, and I would be the last to say that they lack the concept God. What the traditional proofs of the existence of God, in fact, do is connect the concerns of two different salvific enterprises, the enterprise of ancient and medieval philosophy, which after all is the source of the materials for those proofs, and the enterprise of monotheistic religion. While it's certainly possible to have a deeply worthwhile religious attitude which combines these two elements, indeed the effort to do so has contributed profoundly to Judaism and my religious tradition as well as to Christianity and Islam, it's also possible to have a deeply fulfilling religious attitude while keeping far away from metaphysics. Speaking for myself, I would say that while I do conceive of God as a transcendent being, as a necessary being, as an unconditioned ground for the existence of everything that is contingent, I feel that insofar as I have any handle on these notions, I have a handle on them as religious notions, not as notions which are supported by an independent philosophical theory, certainly not by the theory of Aristotle's metaphysics. For me, the proofs show conceptual connections of great depth and significance. They're not simply fallacies, but they are not a foundation for my religious belief. And in spite of Maimonides' prestige, they never played an important role in Judaism. Nor are the proofs the way in which I would try to bring someone else to religious belief of any sort. A second familiar response to religious skepticism is the dogmatist, my religion is true and every other belief is wicked, especially atheism or no better than witch doctoring, other religions. A friend remarked, I understand this is very popular among people philosophers don't talk to. <laughs> Not only is this response a denial of the very raison d'etre of philosophy itself, which John Dewey so well defined as criticism of criticism, but in a marvelous discussion of the psychology of fanaticism in in the critique of judgment, Kant argues that this is at bottom not a religious attitude at all. Kant's point is that the fanatic, his term for what I just called the dogmatist, treats religious beliefs as if they were as sure as ordinary perceptual beliefs. I remarked a few moments ago that skepticism about the existence of houses and rocks has happily become a purely theoretical issue. In practice, as Kant pointed out in the critique of pure reason, Perceptions of such objects is passive. We have no real choice about whether to believe that there's a house in front of us when we see one. Nor do we have to take responsibility for believing that there's a house there when we see or walk into one. For the fanatic, it is as if he had as simply and as unproblematically seen God or seen Jesus or heaven and hell. Those who do not accept what is so obvious are wicked or stupid or both, or in the best case, waiting for the fanatic to enlighten them. Such an attitude, Kant believed, misses the essence of true religious faith, which for him involves the recognition that what one believes is not simply forced upon one passively. The uncertainty, the unprovability of religious propositions is, Kant believed, a good thing. For if religious propositions could be proved, there would be nothing to take responsibility for. What Kant suggests, to put it in present-day language, is that the fanatic is unconsciously fleeing responsibility. I find that my perceptions are in accord with Kant's here, 
I find that both his psychology of fanaticism and the phenomenology of faith presupposed by that psychology are very deep. A third approach to skepticism, often associated with existentialism, is to accept responsibility for believing what cannot be proved. I already mentioned the note Avisagi found in an unpublished bit of Kierkegaard's Nachlass, which, which reads, Leap of Faith, Yes, but Only After Reflection. In this approach, the role of religious experience is not to prove something, but to confront one with an existential choice, to make believe or don't believe what James called a live option. A fine but deeply challenging account of this third option can be found in Wittgenstein's Lectures on Religious Belief. Wittgenstein described himself, by the way, as not a believer, although I cannot help seeing every question from a religious point of view. I am not a believer, but I cannot help seeing every question from a religious point of view. Here's something else that Wittgenstein writes. These religious controversies look entirely different from normal controversies. Reasons look entirely different from normal reasons. They are, in a way, quite inconclusive. The point is that if there were evidence, this would, in fact, destroy the whole business. Several paragraphs later, Wittgenstein discusses a Father O'Hara, who he tells us is one of those people who make it a question of science. There was a series, by the way, on religion and science on the BBC, which Wittgenstein heard, and heard two, and one of them uh, on two occasions, and one of the occasions was this Father O'Hara. And he continues, here we have religious people who treat this evidence in a different way. They base things on evidence which taken in one way would seem exceedingly flimsy. They base enormous things on this evidence. Am I to say they are unreasonable? I wouldn't call them unreasonable. I would say they are certainly not reasonable. That's obvious. <laughs> unreasonable implies with everyone rebuke. I want to say they don't treat this as a matter of reasonability. Anyone who reads the epistles will find it said not only that it's not reasonable, but that it is folly. Not only is it not reasonable, but it doesn't pretend to be. What seems to me ludicrous about O'Hara is his making it appear to be reasonable. The question these remarks of Wittgenstein's invite is the obvious one. Is it ever justified to believe what is not reasonable? This is the question that William James dealt with in his celebrated essay, The Will to Believe, which James rightly points out should have been called The Right to Believe. That often misrepresented and misinterpreted essay, it seems to me, gives exactly the right answer to this question, but it would take a lecture as long as this one to interpret and discuss it. I want, however, to make just one point about it, namely that James emphasizes that saying there's a right to believe is not the same thing as saying that there's a right to dogmatize. And that, too, seems to me exactly right. Why did I focus on experience, then? In view of what I just said, it will be clear that I did not focus on experience in this lecture because I wish to argue that religious experience answers skeptical questions. But I did have a reason for focusing on it, just as Wittgenstein had a reason for focusing on the complexity of the phenomenon of religious belief. Wittgenstein began his lectures on religious belief by pointing out that believers and atheists regularly talk past each other. If you search the web under atheism, you'll find a great deal of intelligent and painstaking proof that the Bible contains errors, 
It is silly to think that every word of the Bible was literally dictated by God, etc., etc. But precious little recognition that most religious people are not fundamentalist. And many do not believe in the idea of divine dictation at all. It is that atheists too were fanatics in Kant's sense. For them too, their re religious belief and their negative religious belief is, it seems, akin to a perpetual perceptual certainty, something that involves no responsibility. Wittgenstein, if I interpreted him correctly, did not want to make us believers. As I said, he was not religious himself. But he felt an enormous respect for the literature and the spirituality contained in religious traditions. And he wished to combat this sort of simplistic stereotyping. One way of overcoming the idea, and we need to overcome it, that it is simply obvious what having a religious faith consists in, is to overcome the idea that it's simply obvious, or if not obvious, obviously irrelevant, what the words religious experience refer to. In this lecture, I've tried to suggest that what experience refers to is far more complicated a matter than we tend to think, and that understanding how deep experience can be is a necessary preliminary to any discussion of science and religion. And such a preliminary, or perhaps propaedutic, is what I've attempted to offer this evening. Thank you. Thank you very much to Professor Putnam for his lecture. Now I would like to call up Professor Hubert Switzer from our Department of Philosophy, who will offer some comments. I'm afraid I must disappoint anyone who was hoping for an opposing view to the position Professor Putnam has been advocating. I am very largely, and I suppose also deeply, sympathetic to that deeper conception of human experience that he's been so richly and vividly presenting to us in its various forms. And I also share Putnam's suspicion that what he calls the shallow conception still runs deep in much of contemporary philosophy. What I'd like to do very briefly, I've been given five minutes, is try to strengthen the case for this deeper conception of experience. <clears throat> I'm afraid that some of the things Putnam has been saying, not all of them, make the deeper conception seem more like an interesting and perhaps fruitful option than, as Kant would have it, the only possible conception. How does one argue against Hume's minimalist view? namely that experience is nothing more than sensory intake, a view that Putnam claims is wrong. I don't think it's enough to say things like this. Well, it's, not, it's just not true that we experience those familiar things around us, like a cat drinking milk, a tree swaying in the wind, as mere collections of color points on a spatial grid. We actually see a cat drinking milk, etc. As if this was somehow obviously the more accurate characterization. The empiricist's rejoinder to this piece of good sense will go thus. Of course you'll describe or think of your experience in these terms as a cat drinking milk, etc. But it's very important to disentangle what the senses actually yield 
from our thoughts about what is yielded by them, from what the mind makes of the situation. And the reason this is important, the empiricist will continue, is because genuine experience, raw experience, is of what is unadornedly there, of what actually presents itself to consciousness. Thought, on the other hand, unless it confines itself strictly to recording or mirroring raw experience, imputes to the world things that aren't actually there. It produces, as Hume says, fictions, things made by the mind. The importance of experience is that it and it alone is our indicator of what reality contains. If anyone genuinely, that's to say directly, experiences God, then God is real. But it's not enough that people describe their experience as of God, or of causality, or of beauty, or of a DNA sequence. The fact that we employ, even that we unavoidably employ concepts in describing our experience does not of itself show that those concepts are integral to the experience itself. Hume might still be right about what actual experience is like. Nor, I think, is it enough for purposes of answering Hume to say that if experience weren't infused with deep concepts, it couldn't be as it is. That without the concept of causality, for example, we wouldn't be able to experience anything as occurring in objective time. Why not say, as Hume might say, that we think of events as happening in objective time and allow that the experience itself is no more than what it seems to be, seems to be a merely subjective succession of sensations, if we're just confining ourselves to experience. Nor, finally, is it enough to point out that experiences and concepts, or as in William James, sensations and aperceptive ideas, are inextricably intertwined. It's not enough to point out that. Unless we're given an explanation as to why that must be so, why they cannot be disentangled even in principle. Perhaps it's just very difficult to disentangle them. Now I think Professor, in fact I'm sure, Professor Putnam is aware of these sorts of empiricist responses to the deeper conception of experience. I quote from him, from Kant to McDowell, philosophers who point out that experience is conceptualized have been told that they're in some way problematizing our access to reality, close quote. And more important, Putnam tells us that Kant does not just claim but argues in detail that even the simplest perception, this I'm still quoting here, links us to and interanimates such deep ideas as the ideas of time, space, causality, and the self. Putnam does not tell us what this detailed argument consists of. I shall try here very briefly, maybe in one minute. Uh, that's quite ludicrous, but I shall. Try here very briefly, without going into any of the details, I shall try to give a, a general sense of how that argument proceeds. I fear that until we see the rationale for these Kantian claims, the issue of the nature of experience will continue to look as if it's up for grabs, with the hard heads going one way and the romantics going the other. What Kant tries to show is that those deep ideas, like the ideas of space, time, and causality, are indispensable not merely for thinking about experience, or describing it, but for experience to be experience, for it to qualify as consciousness of anything at all. What is missing in what Hume is talking about, now from Kant's standpoint, what's missing in what Hume is talking about, sensory intake, is not just conceptualization of any kind, 
but consciousness itself. In limiting ourselves to sensory intake, we might as well be talking about a camera. The aperture is open, the film is present, an image is cast. But for all that, nothing is seen. There is no awareness of anything at all. Or as Kant puts it, intuitions without concepts are blind. If what is impressed upon the senses is to be experienced, it must register in the mind. And that means, so Kant argues, that what is experienced means something to the experiencer. It is, as philosophers would say nowadays, it is his intentional object. What is experienced is his intentional object. If it did not mean something to him, if it were not his intentional object, he could do nothing further with it, could not remember it or construct ideas or thoughts about it or use it as a basis or ground for anything. From Hume's mere impressions, contrary to what Hume believes, no ideas can be formed. But for the sense data to mean something to the experiencer, Kant continues, is for the experiencer to judge that something is so. And to judge is always to employ just those deep concepts we've been talking about, space, time, causality, and so on. That is why there's no such thing as raw experience or any kind of consciousness of anything that is not conceptualized. I think this argument of Kant's is essential to his answer to Hume. Whether it actually succeeds is, of course, another matter. Thank you. I would like to briefly remind you to please, um, if you have any questions, please complete an index card and hand it into the aisle. We will have a question and answer session soon. And now I would like to welcome Professor Bruno Latour to offer some further brief comments. Well, I have many more questions than my predecessor, but I'm not sure it's because I'm much less uh, conversant in the discipline of philosophy or because I'm deeply jet-lagged or because I'm thinking of the lectures tomorrow, which is the one I will give. And I, my question will be, of course, uh, framed into the atmosphere of a comparison between the two lectures, which you have heard only one. The importance of the lecture tonight, I think, resides on the argument around fanatism. There are people who blow themselves up right now uh, in many parts of the world against many people um, in the name of that certain different type of undisputable religion creed. And I think it's a very important uh, argument that um, Putnam is putting us tonight, and I would evaluate the paper really if I'm allowed to do it, uh, how much of a discussion with people who blow themselves up is facilitated by Hillary's argument, if you allow me this question. Because in every religious matter, the question is how diplomatic can we be? I mean, I take the most important argument in the end of the paper about responsibility and the argument which is very nicely taken out of Kant uh, about the fanatist fleeing responsibility. So my question is really, is Putnam or the Kant that Putnam uh, proposes enough to do the diplomatic uh, job? And I'm worried 
I'm worried by many features of a paper. The first one is the first page where the entities which are supposed to be part of religious experience are simply put aside as an obvious feature. And I'm asking the question, would that hold water with the people who are ready to sacrifice their life for uh, them? I mean, it's very nice to say, well, of course, we are talking among reasonable persons, and of course, the entities can be left aside. The problem is that 99% of religious expense and many religions around the world is to be seized by these entities, by to be possessed by them. So what sort of republic, what sort of common denominator can we have if we say, well, of course, we will have a nice discussion of religion, but please leave aside the entities before entering the room. The people who are said, who are told that, blow up the room if the entities are left aside. Now, I'm worried by page two, because on page two, it said that there are lots of experiencing events, like having a child, which are religious to Professor Putnam. And I, I mean, I had also a child, and I liked it a lot, of course, and it was a very important event. But lots of events, lots of events, too, that's much too wide in order, again, to start discussing or disputing or stopping or converting or reinterpreting what people who are, who are dear and who are possessed by entities would think. So I'm worried about this as a general features of action. The, I won't discuss the very technical part of the discussion on sensation and its critique because I think it comes actually absolutely not from the, um, the question that Professor Putman says but for a political reason which is, uh, actually I'm surprised it's not in the paper because most of the argument which have been developed by empiricists was precisely to make peace against religious war of the, of the former centuries. That is, the very notion of matters of fact, undisputable matter of fact, as it has been very nicely shown by Shapin and Sheffers and many others and Pouvet, is precisely a way of avoiding religious wars. So it's a way of pacifying and it has absolutely nothing to do with sensory data. All of that is a very superficial argument. How can we make peace against these people before who had all these strange ideas about their divinities? I mean, all of these things which were in the whole of Europe wars, religious war. And if we could stick at least to this undisputable sensory data, at least this will get peace. So I'm not sure if this um, can be reopened without opening the precisely <laughs> the original dispute of religious war, out of which empiricism was invented. And I think fourth, I mean, basically I have problem with every page, although I like the paper. Uh, it's very paradoxical to take Kant, religious in the limit of mere reason, as a template to think about dispute, because, I mean, it's a fabulous argument. I agree, and it was very nicely redone. But again, in terms of diplomacy, of diplomacy I mean, what it is to say even in this very nice sentence, page six, um, whereas for Hume, experiences are sheer psychological surface, for Kant, even the simplest perception links us to and interanimates such deep ideas, the ideas of time, space, causality, and the self. Now, to say, okay, God is, uh, well, I don't know the name uh, in, in, in English, um, regulatory ID, is this the one, the translation? That is precisely not granting those who you talk to 
the very existence of what they hold to. Is, there, is this a way of entering into the discussion? And the solution, as usual, when you get with Kant, Kant is a half-constructivist. So it's very nice in reconstructing part of the argument, part of the activity of the mind in making the thing, but the divinities, the entities themselves, the one that sees you, are not there. Well, they are there a bit in the paper, but they are there under the two usual aspects where religion is discussed, that is, aesthetization and moralization. So there is a very nice argument about indeterminate concept which allows some sort of uh, constructivism, but it's on the side of the uh, activity of a self. The possessing entities, the one you are seized by, don't appear. Well, it appears in one part of the paper, in a very small part, as uh, precisely in the argument on art, where you are overcome by what you made yourself which is the difference between determinate and indeterminate judgment. You are suddenly seized or overcome in little bit by the work of art that you were doing. But this is a highly aesthetized, a highly domesticated, a highly reasonable, a highly rationalized definition of what it is to be seized by the activity of your own hands. And um, I'm not going to go because my five minutes, I guess, are uh, finished now. But um, the, the only sort of positive features where the divinities could lodge in Putnam's paper is the word evoke. Now, most of the rituals we know in religion around the world have a theurgic, how do you say that in English? Theurgic quality. That is the ability of produce the gods, the divinities, to make them appear, evoke, um, to find the in the indeterminate concept, the image of your own freedom is a very, very, very weak definition of what it is to produce the divinity. And I'm not sure that um, when you discuss with people like Bin Laden, they would sort of say, okay, this is a very uh, good rendering of my religious experience and I will abstain from now on to blow yourself up. I think it is a very important problem a very important problem is how to overcome fanaticism. But is the first argument, and I'll close with that, is the first way of defining the depth of experience, is to say your experience will not have the depth you request. That is, I'm not granting to you the divinities you talk about. So what is a deep experience where what is experienced, that is, the deafness, the obvious features of the seizing divinity is den denied at first. I don't say it's a superficial reading. On the contrary, I think it's a very deep argument and it's a very classical argument, but is it a diplomatic argument which can allow to connect with the fanaticist? I'm not sure. In other words, what my judgment of the paper is based on this argument of how can we construct the divinities together since we are in a, plural, a plurality of divinities and we have to be able to survive with these pluralistic divinities, we cannot do the job if we don't have a constructivist definition of a God production. But in order to be constructivist, we cannot be like Kant, half-constructivist, only on the side of the activity of the mind. We have to be able also to get the divinities back, and to get that not, of course, and here I agree entirely with Hillary, not in the dogmatic version of it, this is what James wanted, but in a sort of uh, diplomatically credible negotiation 
So I don't believe that deep experience can be first said, of course, leave the divinities at the door if you want to enter into a civilized society. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to Professor Latour. I believe we do have some basis for a bit of back and forth. Professor Putnam, if you would like to briefly respond. And at any rate, our refreshments won't show up till 8.45. So um, uh, I can take some more questions if you would like to uh, write them on index cards and pass them to the aisle. Professor Putnam, would you like to briefly respond? Yeah. I think you can do so from there. First of all, I admire uh, Hubert uh, Schwitzer, Schwitzer's ability to summarize parts of Kant that I certainly did not attempt to summarize and to do it in uh, two and a half pages, two and a half time, type written pages. And of course, I did not, I, of course, uh, I, I think he's absolutely right. I did not attempt to give Kant's, I would say a little more on the, why I think Kant is absolutely right without, uh, without going uh, through all the deep issues that uh, Professor Schweitzer raised. If you think of this line that, well, maybe, you know, maybe um, perception is just a points on a color grid. Uh, Christopher Peacock at times writes nowadays as if that's the right account. And it's just that the mind adds to what we perceive, something that Russell tried in uh, the analysis of mind. Um, first of all, that's, that's not, I think, true to what we experience. I mean, when you look at the if you had the experience of uh, learning a, a foreign alphabet, then you've had the experience of first seeing these signs as scribbles, and then a word take form. And now when you see STOP, you cannot help seeing stop. You know, that phenomenon is so widespread that almost no one now, uh, no neurologist, uh, will try to reduce that just to retinal images or color point grids is this way modules get postulated and so on. Uh, <clears throat> well, if you try to say the, the, the empiricist move the standard from for centuries now has been to talk about unconscious inference. But unconscious inferences are just that. They're unconscious. <laughs> if my brain makes an inference, say, uh, such and such neurons fired. <laughs> Therefore, it's stopped that I'm seeing. That's, not, that's what is called, rightly, a subpersonal inference. It's not something to be accounted for as the intentional knowledge, the judgment of a person. I know that I've seen the word stop. Uh, if you say, well, you just have... Uh, First of all, it can't be denied that there's something different just at the, even at the level of sensation. It is different seeing the word stop and seeing a bunch of wiggles. But secondly, if it's only my unconscious, that is to say my neurons, that do this inferring, what about my awareness of my own thoughts as judgments? There, too, if you're going to, say, follow the idea that all it, what you're, you're just really having a sensation and all to figure out of what it means is unconscious, then you're really forced back to a radical epiphenomenalism of the kind that perhaps Santayana mm -hmm. held. You have the illusion of judgment. 
but there's nobody, there's nobody home, as it were. And I think that Kant really saw the depth of the, was the first philosopher to see how deep these issues go, and the fact that they still be uh, argued about in, with all of our sophistication today in cognitive science, in neurology, and so on, shows just how deep they run. Uh, turning to uh, Bruno Latour's worries, uh, I, I, I must say I've been misinterpreted, but partly I have this experience talking to people interested in historical explanation. I remember once uh, being at a conference where my commentator was Ernst Gellner, who explained how all my views come from the fact that I'm an American and therefore optimistic, etc. <laughs> therefore I believe in convergence. Uh, but and I, when I said on page two, when I speak of religious experience in what follows, I will not mean experience that purports to be of supernatural beings. Uh, I think relatively few people, perhaps not even the Al-Qaeda bombers, really think that they have seen an angel or seen God. Uh, the Bible itself, uh, the, the, um, the Jewish Bible at least, most of the prophets say, in a dream. Right here. Only Moses claims to have uh, talked to God face to face, and then only God's back is visible. A very, a very interesting point. No one can see my face and live. So the, but the fact that an ex, but I did not mean to be putting the entities out. I was not saying that I count any, anyone who's deeply moved by uh, the birth of a child. I not, did not say that anyone was deeply moved by the birth of a child as having a religious experience. The point is it may be experienced as full of religious significance. It may be experienced as a by a religious person. The birth of their child may be experienced as a miracle. That doesn't leave the entity out. Experiencing something as the gift of God involves a conceptualization that involves God. For my wife, seeing these two enormous, the intricacy of these two incredible systems the rainforests in Australia, that's the Atherton Tableland, which you can see the day before you go on a boat to see the Great Barrier Reefs. Seeing the rainforest with these incredibly complicated interdependent systems. Did you know, for example, there are species of kangaroos that live only at the tops of the trees. All, they live their whole lives 70 feet, 80 feet, 100 feet above the ground. You know, this incredible interdependence. And at the, then you see the Great Barrier Reef, a system which is the only product of life visible from space. I'm saying my wife describes that. I did not have the same experience. But she describes that as feeling a sense of awe at the complexity of God's creation. So I was not trying to say, I, you know, I was seen as somehow some kind of religious liberal who was just trying to re use, steal the word God. And that's not me at all. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a theist. I believe in God, which is uh, re regarded as really very primitive on the part of many of my friends. <laughs> but, like Kant, I take Kant's point, something else that Kant said in, uh, in the religion within the bounds of mere reason. You never have the right to do something immoral, to break the moral law, because you claim 
that God revealed to you that you're supposed to do this because God says you know the moral law and you don't know that God exists. I'm not defending Kantian constructivism about God. And even God is not consistent about that, by the way. At times, he says, the believer experiences the moral law as given by God, just not as a philosopher he's supposed to believe that. At other times, he seems closer to later German idealism. But I was not talking about that type aspect of Kant's philosophy. What I'm saying is that the, uh, we have to appreciate, before we even try to imagine what someone like myself, who thinks he does have religious experiences, although he doesn't claim to have ever seen an angel or heard God's voice, means by that, or what my wife means by the way she described the experience of the, of the Atherton Tableland and the Great Barrier Reef, or what, many, or what any religious person means, whether or not they're also a fanatic. Now, with respect to discussion with fanatics, I was neither trying to describe a way in which we can win fanatics over by argument. I don't believe Bruno Latour thinks we can do that, sadly. <laughs> if we could, it would be very nice. Nor was I, on the other hand, trying to read them outside of the, out of the human race. I mean, the temptation to fanaticism is, whether you're an atheist or not, there are atheist fanatics too. The temptation to fanaticism is a standing human temptation. The point is not to say these are not humans. Whenever you say someone is not human, you yourself are avoiding responsibility. You're avoiding recognizing that that temptation is in you as well. Uh, the only solution I can see to the problem of fanaticism is to change the conditions that breed so much fanaticism. As, as a Jew, as someone who spends part of every year in Israel, as someone who's horrified uh, both by Arafat's refusal of the Rabin Barak peace proposals and by Sharon's deliberate provocation, as I see it, deliberate provocation uh, of the Palestinians. So to me, this is a, a, an agonizing, the problem is an agonizing reality. I mean, one of the places that I eat in, in uh, Jerusalem, have been bombed. Uh, this is not a theoretical issue. But just as I think that it's only by making a, that what Israel must do is make it possible be a better life for Palestinians, I think in the long run, the issue of fanaticism is one, the problem is not to win over the person who's already a suicide bomber. The person is, as lots of, Pal I work with a group, or I don't, I, I give money to a group, I don't work with them, but then, group called Rabbis for Human Rights in Israel. And one thing they say is that Palestinian parents often want their children to meet them. They want their children, they say, I want my children to know there are some good Jews because I don't want my child to become a suicide bomber. So this is, I mean, to put it in, so how are you going to argue with a person who's already a fanatic seems to me the wrong context to put this in. Um, professors Latour and Schwitzer, you may feel free to join in at any point. Thank you. I'd like to now uh, read some questions. And again, we can always take more. 
Um, some of these, by the way, are rather technical. We'll see if we can get to those in time. Uh, some are uh, attempting to amplify your notion of experience. And uh, some are quite general. And I think I'm going to start with some quite general ones. Richard Dawkins, the biologist, points out that if archaeologists found Jesus' footprints, Christians would rejoice in this evidence for their God. Why should they have it one way but not the other? Don't science and religion, in fact, deal with the same universe? Shouldn't they be held to the same standard? I'm reminded of a definition of naturalism. I've been recently writing, naturalism is a word that's being used currently a lot for what used to be called materialism or scientism. And I suddenly noticed that the definitions of naturalism that one finds are always disjunctions. I mean, the one in the Boyd Casper glossary, for example, is naturalist is either someone who believes either that all phenomena are subject to natural law or that the methods of science are the methods to use for any kind of knowledge. And I started thinking about this, and I thought, well, suppose I say that Kant wrote a passage that's rather difficult to understand on a certain moment. Is that, let's take the first disjunction. Is that subject to natural law? Well, I don't think Kant violated any natural laws when he wrote a passage that was difficult to interpret. If that's all it takes, if all it takes to, uh, to give scientists due is to say that what happens in this world doesn't violate natural laws, that's pretty easy, right? I mean, what's the issue? If, on the other hand, the idea is that there's a science which contains the terms difficult to interpret, the idea is that there's a science of, inter of correct interpretation of texts which uses exactly the same methods as physics. First of all, physics doesn't use any single set of methods. The methods change with time. And any reasonable way of identifying methods, August Comte said there's no such thing as the scientific method. Each, each science involves its own, evolves its own sets of methods. And that's surely right. And surely, uh, you, do, you don't write down differential equations when you interpret a text, and neither do you perform laboratory experiments, but there is nonetheless good and bad textual interpretation. I mean, the, the whole, I am a pluralist. There is no one set of quotes methods by which we can answer all questions. And if there were another remark of Kant's would apply, Kant said there can't be a rule for good judgment because if there were, it would take good judgment to interpret the rule. <laughs> you spoke briefly in your lecture of science, but um, more in depth of religion. Is it possible that a scientist can have something akin to a religious experience? And if so, what does that mean for scientific objectivity? I think the, first of all, I think there are certain principles <coughs> which apply to every area of human life. For the pragmatism, which has influenced me a lot, I don't call myself a pragmatist, but I've certainly been influenced by American pragmatism, 
try to steer, steer a middle course be, between the fantasy of the logic of science, a method that you, you could formalize the way we formalize what we call first-order logic for doing non-demonstrative inferences in every area, which, which is, I think, most philosophers would today say a utopian fantasy, and concluding that there's nothing you can say. For example, the principle of fallibilism, that we are not infallible and we don't have a right to dogmatize in any area. Principle of communication, that we should try to check our ideas, our beliefs against those of other people. A maxim which Kant also enunciated, by the way, in the, second, in the, in the third critique as well, the, sec the section on the common sense. Uh, there are things you can say about responsible intellectual procedure in any area. But that doesn't mean, no matter how responsible we are, responsible people can and w disagree and will disagree. And that means we need uh, what's called a discourse ethics. We need to recognize a mutual recognition of the right of the other to disagree with us, even about questions about which we care very deeply. So we know something about what reasonableness requires of us, even if we can't re reduce it to a computer program. Now in the case of science, uh, the <coughs> fact that a scientist is, relig is religious need not mean that he tries to twist or manipulate the data or twist or manipulate the theories to fit his religious convictions. On the other hand, there are, there are and have been scientists who have put forward one theory rather than another, uh, perhaps because it accorded better with their religion. In the time of Newton, for example, Newton and Leibniz felt quite free to ask which of their competing theories of space accorded better with their conception of God. Uh, it did not keep them from being extremely good scientists. Uh, scientists have produced theories based on philosophical speculations. Einstein tells us that he arrived at special relativity by applying a Humean critique to the idea of absolute simultaneity. Again, it, it is not, I mean, sometimes this is explained too simply by saying, well, there's a difference between context of discovery and context of justification. Uh, there is a difference. It doesn't mean that in the context of discovery anything goes or just a question of what you had for breakfast. <laughs> because there are, there are people who come up with, two dis with good discoveries too often and too consistently for it to be just a matter of what they had for breakfast unless they know of a restaurant that I don't. And I, I think, again, there are maxims but not algorithms which, should guide, which can guide one, help one in, in the context of discovery. But it is true that it's especially in the context of justification, in the context of checking a theory, not in the context of what leads you to propose it as a hypothesis, but in the context of checking a theory, that, that, we, it, that we try deliberately to put aside uh, personal religious convictions, philosophical convictions, politics, and so on. But of course, we cannot succeed completely, and especially uh, in a class society, we clearly do not succeed. I would like to thank Professor Hilary Putnam very much for your presentation this evening. Also to Professor Schwitzer and Latour 
for their comments. I would like to thank all of you for coming and remind you that tomorrow night here at 7 p.m., Professor Bruno Latour speaks on the specific regime of re enunciation of religious talk. Thank you very much. Good night.